Our scripture reading this evening is from Romans 13. It's on page 11 of your bulletin and is projected behind me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin. Uh, you can grab that now. And there is a spot on there to write these three things down that I want you to listen specifically for. One is context. Secondly, uh, the Underground Railroad. And then thirdly, Opal Lee. So context, Underground Railroad, and Opal Lee. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to this passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you make when your people gather around your word and when your word is proclaimed, that it will not return void, but that you are at work right here, right now, by your Holy Spirit. And so that's what we ask for. We pray that, that you would show us Jesus today, that we would hear from him, that we would know him more, that we would worship him, that we would love him. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, when Jeanette and I were first married, uh, somebody gave us uh, a calendar, and it was one of those calendars where you tear a day off for all 365 days of the year. And so on these days, or uh, it was specifically for the first year of marriage, so it would have some sort of quote from like a poem or, uh, or a passage from the Bible or, um, or some, some sort of inspirational quote that had to do with marriage. And so uh, one day, it had this passage on it. It was from Genesis 3.16, and it said... Your desire shall be for your husband, which on the surface sounds really nice, right? Very much in keeping with this calendar. But if you were to turn to Genesis 3.16 in your Bible, you would find that that's actually in the section where God is pronouncing the curse on Eve after the fall, after sin has entered the world. And so in the older ESV translation, it said this, your desire shall be for your husband, but in there, for was footnoted as against. And... Um, very different meaning at that point, right? And, and probably not at all what the creators of this calendar had hoped for or had in mind. Uh, for what it's worth, the latest ESV edition says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So that's what it actually says, right? So here's the point. The point is that when you're reading the Bible, context matters a lot. And if you don't understand the context of a passage, then it becomes really easy to misuse and misapply scripture in all kinds of ways. 
And Romans 13 is one of those passages that, that has been and easily gets misused and misapplied. It has a, a pretty rough history, actually. Um, it, it's been used by all kinds of unjust governments and unjust government leaders that will use this passage to try to force and coerce people into obeying their unjust laws and practices. So a few historical examples of this. One, this was a passage that was used in the United States to try to justify the practice of slavery. More recent history, uh, this passage was used to try to justify the practice of apartheid in South Africa. And then even Hitler himself used this passage to try to justify the Holocaust. And so I mention all that because this is a passage that we've got to be very careful with. But, but here's the thing about this. That concern can actually lead to another problem, and it's this. It's really easy to, to be rightly concerned with this passage and the misuse of it, so much so that we can miss what Paul is actually calling us to do here. And it's interesting, you actually see that in a lot of commentaries. Uh, they, they spend a whole lot of time saying what it doesn't say, but not a whole lot of time telling us what it actually does mean and what it requires of us. So that's one challenge with this. Um, if you notice that that's not the only challenge um, with this passage. Um, another is that we now live in a representative democracy. Uh, that does not map on directly to Paul's audience living in the Roman Empire, right? So there's some difficulties there as to how we think about it. And, and maybe the, the, the most pressing difficulty is that in our world right now, there is a massive temptation to political idolatry of setting our hopes on po politics and raising them up to an ultimate level where effectively what we begin doing is looking to them as some sort of savior, as the real answer. And what goes along with that a lot of times is that you start looking at your political opponents, not just as those that maybe you disagree with on particular points, but actually as those who are capital E evil. That's what political idolatry will do to us. That's part of the reason that churches are experiencing so much division over these kinds of questions. So here's what's really interesting about this though. Paul is writing this to the church in the context or in the section of Romans where he's telling us what it looks like to embody the gospel in our life together. He's talking about here that the difference that the gospel makes in a community of people. And so that, that's why we've called this series on Romans 12 to 16, Embodying Gospel Community. And, and, and so what we're gonna see today uh, is that our relationship to governing authorities is actually a way that we have the opportunity to embody the gospel together. And so uh, here's what I want us to see this week. We embody the gospel in our life together by ordinarily obeying government authorities as subjects to Christ our King. By ordinarily obeying the governing authorities as subjects of Christ our King. So we're gonna look at this under two headings. Uh, the first is our ministry to the state. And then secondly, the ministry of the state. So first, our ministry to the state. And so if you just look at the first couple of verses, in some ways, this is pretty straightforward, right? So look back at verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So we're gonna look at a moment here, of course, at that command that, that he gives, that we're to be subject to the governing authorities. But I want you to notice first the reason 
for this first command. Because th- th- this is really important, and it's going to be important for us in understanding this whole passage. It's this. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So a couple things to notice here. One is this. Paul says here that all authority is ultimately God's authority. In other words, at the end of the day, there is only one true king. And that's God himself. And of course, you see this all over the Bible. God is described as a king all over the place. He's the true king who creates this world and everything in it as his kingdom, over which he reigns as sovereign. And then it's really interesting. He's the one who's described as the one who will raise up kings, and he's the one who will remove kings as well. Again, plenty of examples of this. Maybe one of the best, though, is from the book of Daniel. So kids, you might recognize this from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, But Daniel says this of the Lord when he's interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, who was the king of Babylon. He says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. And if you fast forward in the book of Daniel, that's exactly what God does when he judges Nebuchadnezzar for his idolatry. And so he says this later on, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, and listen to this, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. See, the point is that God is the only true king. And this takes on a whole new level of significance in the New Testament. Because when when Jesus shows up on the scene and first announces the gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, here's how he does it. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the gospel is actually an announcement about a new king. It's a political announcement in that way, where God himself where, where Jesus is now himself, this new king that's arrived on the scene. And so I mention all of that to say that Jesus is, this, is the true king. And so any authority, any authority at all that any ruler or government has is always in subjection to the authority of the true king. So here's the other thing that we need to see about this passage. That does not then mean that all governing authorities are good governing authorities, Right? So an obvious example of that is, uh, is Nebuchadnezzar that we just saw. Another is Pharaoh that we looked at in the, uh, in the Old Testament lesson. God overthrows both of those rulers. In the New Testament, an example of that is Pontius Pilate, this one who commanded the crucifixion of Jesus. And so here's the point. Our first and our final authority is always, is always God himself. And so that's going to be incredibly important as we look at at the rest of Paul's words here. So all authority is God's authority. Not all rulers that that God establishes are good rulers. So then here's the question. What does that mean for Paul's words to us here, right? What does he he require of us here? So I'm going to start the way a lot of people do, by talking about what it doesn't require of us, okay? And so here's the first thing. It does not require of us unquestioned, absolute obedience to governing authorities, And so what a lot of people do is that they'll point out here that there's a difference between submitting to governing authorities and then then absolute obedience to them. 
So being subject to an authority requires that, that you recognize their God-ordained place. That doesn't, however, mean that it requires of you absolute unquestioning obedience to them. And, and here's the reality. Because Jesus is our true king and there is no perfect governing authority, there are going to be times when a ruler could and maybe will require you to do something that if you were to do it would result in you disobeying your true king, Jesus. And when those circumstances arise, not only are, are we allowed to disobey the governing authorities, we must. We have to disobey those governing authorities in order to obey our true king. So a few examples of this. One is that what we read in the Old Testament reading. The Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 where Pharaoh said, you must kill all these Hebrew boys, they wouldn't do it. Another example was Daniel, when he, he disobeyed the Babylonian rulers all kinds of different times. One was when Nebuchadnezzar uh, told him that he must bow down to this golden image. He refused to do it. Darius, later on, says that he needed to pray to Darius. Again, Daniel wouldn't do it. And then in the New Testament, Peter actually says this to the Sanhedrin, who were some of the governing authorities at that time. He says this in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. One other example uh, outside, from outside the Bible, and it was those Christians who were part of the Underground Railroad, those who, who refused to obey the laws that kept African Americans enslaved, and, and very consciously broke those laws and did so in order to free those slaves, and they did it in order to obey God, in order to love God and to love their neighbors. And, and here's the thing about this. Part of our ministry to the state is not to obey when it runs contrary to God's desires. That's actually part of the way we minister to the state because as we do that, what we're doing is we are bearing witness to the true king and to his just kingdom. And so what happens when, when we disobey for those good reasons is it, it serves as almost an indictment on these human authorities, on these civil authorities, on the unjust and evil things that they might be doing. One other note on this. It is relevant here uh, that we live in a representative democracy. Again, very different uh, from, uh, from Paul's, uh, the, the audience to which Paul's writing here. He, here's one of the things that's really different about that. There is a very real sense in which uh, we, the people, actually have political authority. We have some sense of political authority and political responsibility. So part of what that means then is that there are gonna be times where exercising that authority is speaking out against and working against what is unjust in our world. It's, it's uh, calling the authorities on things that they are doing if they fail to do what God has called them to be and to do, which is described in verses three and four, which we'll look at in just a moment here. So what Paul is not saying here, what this does not require of us, is that we are to give this absolute unquestioned obedience. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, that's the easy part. What does this actually require us to do? So uh, a few things, one is this. It does require us to ordinarily submit to the authority of the government. And so what Paul says is that God has instituted civil government and he's given it real authority for our good. It's for our good. He says that specifically in verse four. In other words, Christians are not anarchists. There is a good role for government to play. It is a gift of God in that way. And then if you look at verse five, it says this, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, put a pin in that, we're gonna come back to it, okay? Uh, but also for the sake of conscience. 
So what does Paul mean when he says conscience here? Well, he, he means this recognition that God is the one who has instituted governmental authority. And, and because of that, it's then our duty to, to respect and to submit to that authority. Here's a corollary to this, though. It, it does require us, then, to submit to governing authorities even if you don't like the ruler's politics or policies. We submit to the governing authorities not because we agree with everything they say. We, we, we submit to the governing authorities because we're obeying our God. And so here's another way to get at this. It's to say there is a difference between what is unjust and then there's a difference between what is unjust and with what is unwise. If something is unjust, if there's something that is going to require you to sin, then yes, you've got the obligation to disobey that. But there are plenty of policies, uh, of laws, of political platforms that, that you just don't like, right? That's the way it is uh, in the world in which we live, that, that you might think are bad for all kinds of reasons that do have a real impact in this world. I don't want to downplay that at all. But it doesn't change God's call to submit to them. And the way Paul shows this in a way that we might not like a lot is that he talks about paying taxes, right? So if this passage wasn't easy enough already, right? So we're going to make it even more difficult here. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. So you may completely disagree with our government's tax law. You might think, this is a really unwise way to manage money. I could do a whole lot better with my own money, and uh, th this is not something that I'm real excited about. But here's the thing to keep in mind. Think about Paul's audience just for a moment. He's telling them that they must pay taxes to the Roman Empire. The way that taxes were collected, the ways that tax those tax funds were employed, were all kinds of things that, that they would not have been excited about. And yet... Paul still calls us, calls them to pay taxes just like he does to us as well. So that's the second thing. Here's the third thing it requires of us. It requires us to submit in a respectful and honoring way. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, we're to pay respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Peter says something similar. This is 1 Peter 2.17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And just to, to state something that is really probably pretty obvious, there are a lot of things that the emperor did that were not very honorable. And yet, Paul and Peter are saying here that there is a way to submit that is respectful, and there is a way to submit that is disrespectful. And there are all, all kinds of ways that we could apply this. Uh, I, I, I think for us, a lot of that is going to come down to the way we speak about those who are in authority. And not just the way that we speak about them, but the way that we might post about them online, on social media. And, and of course, the, the place where this, uh, the rubber meets the road here is um, not when your candidate is in power or your political party is being represented, right? It's, the question is, how do you speak about that candidate or that political party that you did not vote for, that you disagree with deeply, and, and, and so here's the question for us. Could someone look at your social media feed and say, this is what it looks like to disagree and yet continue to respect and honor this government official? 
That's what Paul's calling us to here. And, and I actually think that that, the way in which we would disagree, might be one of the more significant ways that we have opportunity to bear witness to Jesus in our moment right now. And, and the reason I say that is because respecting and honoring government officials with whom you deeply disagree is not the way of the world, right? This is not what we do at all. And so to, to, to represent a, a different way of disagreeing, a way that honors Jesus, actually does point people to him. In, in, in this basic posture of kindness and respect and honor, that will actually stand out in our world right now. So we bear witness to Jesus and his kingdom when we submit in a respectful and honoring way, even when we disagree. And so Paul says that that's our ministry to the state. We have this ministry that we owe to the state. And that's some of what it looks like. He also says, though, that the state has a ministry. So secondly, the ministry of the state. And so there's a sense in which the governing authorities have been given a ministry. And, uh, and you see this in the way Paul talks about the rulers. He calls them servants of God, twice in verse 4. And then he says in verse uh, 6 that he calls them ministers of God. And then what he does is he paints this picture, this is specifically in verses 3 and 4, of what the state should do. And so he describes this ministry or this service in a couple of ways. And it's all wrapped up in how these governing authorities respond to uh, evil and wrongdoing in the world. And then also how they respond uh, to citizens who do good uh, in, in the area over which they govern. And so here's the first thing that they're responsible to do. They are responsible to punish and restrain wrongdoing. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Later on in verse 4 says this, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So one of the things that Paul says here, that the reasons that, that government is a good thing is that it punishes wrongdoing. And so ideally, God has instituted government to protect the innocent, to defend the weak, and, and then to punish those who would seek to do harm to other people. And so that, that's what Paul means when he says that, that he doesn't bear the sword in vain. So the state has been given authority to punish those who break the law. And what most believe here is that this would also include a, a, a just war in the state of an, of an entire country, and that would also uh, include up to capital punishment for particular, uh, particular crimes. But uh, one of the things I want to point out here, though, is, is what Paul says in, verses, uh, in verse 12, 19. So we looked at this passage last week. In that passage, Paul says, we aren't to avenge ourselves. And he says, instead, we're to leave it to the wrath of God. Here's the thing I want us to see this week. That wrong that we are not avenging will still be avenged. And one of the ways that Paul says that happens is actually through the civil authorities. So chapter 13, verse 4, Paul says that the servant of God is an avenger. This is the same word used in 1219, who carries out, he says, the wrath of God. Um, I, my guess is when you hear that phrase and the, the government having some role to play in the wrath of God being inflicted, you are probably squirming a little bit, right? Um, and and I, one of the reasons for that is that when we hear wrath of God, we think final judgment. Like, isn't that when the wrath of God is, is fully revealed? And the answer is yes, it is. However, that's not the only time that the wrath of God is revealed in this world. And if you go back to the beginning of Romans, in Romans 1, 
Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed and it's being revealed through our own sin. Specifically, it's through God giving us over or giving us up to our sin and then suffering the consequences for it. That's an instance, he says, of the revelation of the wrath of God. And so something similar is happening here. And so God's wrath is revealed through the just punishment of wrongdoing by the state, the just punishment of it. But here's the real reason I think that this probably makes us squirm, and it's that we know that governing authorities not only don't always get this right, they get it wrong a lot. And that's true. But again, Paul's talking here about what governments should do. This is the ideal being set forth. And when they carry out justice rightly, it really is a blessing from God. It's what he intends. So punishing and restraining wrongdoing, that's part of the the, the ministry of the state. Here's the second part. It's promoting and rewarding good. Promoting and rewarding good. So middle of verse three, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And so what Paul says here is that there is also this positive role for the government. And it's actually to promote good in society. And he says specifically to reward good. Uh, It's interesting, John Stott, a commentator on this passage, says this is actually something that he thinks that governments could do a better job of, which is kind of something interesting to think about. Here's one example, though, I I think uh, a local example for us where this has been done well. And it's, uh, it's been the way in which Opal Lee has been uh, recognized and celebrated. And so many of you are probably familiar with that name. Miss Lee uh, has lived on the south side of Fort Worth for a whole lot of years. And she has served her neighborhood there for many, many years. And, and it's not an exaggeration to say that she is one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that Juneteenth is now a federal holiday. She was one who, uh, who had walked all the way to Washington in order to make that happen. And so just recently, uh, she was nom- nominated by multiple members of Congress for the Nobel Peace Prize. She found out this past week that she did not win it. But I, I think that's this example of government recognizing and, and, in a sense, rewarding good as well. And so that's an aspect of the ministry of the state as well. So um, I want to close with this. Um, There are a number of things I struggled with this week on this passage. (laughs) Um, One of them, though, uh, is how difficult it is to read Paul's words here without thinking about the specifics of our current political climate. And the reality is we shouldn't read this without thinking about our specific uh, climate right now. But I think the problem, at least one one of the problems that I feel with it, um, is how incredibly cynical we can be and often are towards government and towards politics. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, that, that cynicism comes with, um, with, with good reason. But uh, so, so part of what I think we need to see uh, in this passage and why this is so important to underline is that there really is a good God-instituted character of civil government. And at the same time, it is just as important for us to see how far short every single government falls from this. And so what I want to do is is really end where we began, and it's to say this. There is one true king, and, and, and he's a king who has laid down his life for his subjects. He's given his life in order to show you grace and forgiveness, 
He's given his life in order to set us free from the political idolatry that so easily enslaves us. And this same king is also the king who has risen from the dead, and one day this true king is gonna return. And the great thing about this king is that he's not in his office because of some election, right? He's there because God has placed him there. And when he does return, the, the, the goodness and gracious effects of the fullness of his kingdom are gonna be felt in this world, and it's gonna be wonderful when it does. And so here's what that means for us right now. It means that right now, we can be a people of hope. We can actually be subject to, to governing authorities who sometimes do real good, who sometimes do things that we can really get excited about and be really encouraged about, and also can also recognize that there are times when those same governments do things that, that bring incredible harm on people that are deeply unjust, deeply flawed. We can engage in, in, in all of the ways that our particular political system allows us to, but to do so without placing any kind of ultimate hope in any individual, any candidate, or any particular party. And the reason for that is that there is only one true king, and that is Jesus himself. So Jamie Smith says it this way. This is a quote on the inside front cover of your bulletin. If you want to turn there, you can follow along with it. He says this, our most revolutionary political act is to hope. To be a Christian is to be a person who engages in politics, but does so without fear. Fear drives us to panic, and no one makes good decisions when they're panicked. We overestimate some threats and ignore others. We can't see clearly, and we're prone to being manipulated by those who would foment our panic. But we ought not be a panicked people. Our king has told us over and over again, be not afraid. You've already heard good, new, good news that brings great joy. The king is alive and is seated on his throne and he reigns. And not only that, he is also interceding for us at the right hand of his father. Be not afraid. And that's the true king who offers himself to you right now, who promises to draw near to you and to be with us as we are subjects of him in this world for his glory. Will you receive him? You pray for us. Father, we thank you for the good gifts you've given to us. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you have ordained government in this society and that you've done so for our good. And so, Father, as we do regularly, we pray for our government officials. We pray, Lord, that you would move their hearts in such a way that they would implement just policies, policies and practices that are good uh, for all people. Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us wisdom to know uh, how we can best ultimately serve you in this world and the way in which that service would take shape as we engage uh, in politics and the way in which our civil authority structure works. Father, we need your grace in all of this, and we thank you that your grace is abundant to us. And so we pray uh, all of this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.